For months, MSF teams have been trying to get into the South Kivu region in eastern Zaire. Laurent Kabila's alliance forces, including the Tutsi rebels, now control much of the area and are stopping aid convoys at the border between Zaire and Rwanda. The rebels are backed by the new Rwandan government, and so when Goma, the capital of North Kivu, is opened up to international media and later to humanitarian organisations in November 1996, the Rwandans are still in control. In fact, they control more or less every move in eastern Zaire, of the press and NGOs entering North Kivu, and of the thousands of Hutu refugees being repatriated back to Rwanda. It was a bit of a circus, you know, with all the authorities unloading supplies and saying, thank you very much, you know, you can now go home, we're going to distribute these supplies, and as you can see, we don't need the NGOs anymore. So they were trying to show that they had all the NGOs under their control and that, you know, they were planting flowers on the side of the road, that everything was very well organised. MSF and other observers worry that when they do get into South Kivu, the conditions will be even worse than in the north, as people have been on the road without aid for over a month. In Rwanda, many of the returning Hutu refugees bring with them terrible stories of threats, and worse, being carried out by the alliance forces. Finally, on the 24th of November 1996, a convoy of NGOs is given permission to enter Bukavu, the regional capital of South Kivu, and a 30-kilometre zone around the city. But again, as in North Kivu, they are not alone. Dr Jose Antonio Bastos is the MSF Intersections Emergency Team Coordinator in South Kivu. The NGOs who were allowed to go into Bukavu, we were imposed to have a facilitator uh, join each of us whenever we were conducting assessments away from Bukavu town into the peripheral areas looking for refugees. These facilitators were normally young Banyamulenge, clearly educated students who were assisting the authorities, but clearly with a, with a strong uh, tribal alignment. And uh, these facilitators, uh, with the pretension of being helping us to interact with the, with the local communities and, and taking care of our security, they were clearly informants. They were taking notes and names of every person we contacted, and particularly when we started reaching out and finding groups of refugees that we were trying to find for, for offering them the repatriation or to give them assistance they really needed, they took good note. And uh, later on, we were absolutely certain they were reporting this to the military branch of the, of the Alliance authorities. And uh, we started suspecting strongly that this was leading the, the, the attacks of the military against the refugees in, in several occasions. We went there, identified the refugees, came back to base in Bukavu, tried to go back a second day, and then there were security uh, problems that uh, did not allow us to, to go there. The military stopped us, and we couldn't find that group of refugees ever again. So uh, we started getting very, very, very suspicious. Even we, we had one of these assessments to Mwenga, uh, where we managed to do it without facilitators, and the French uh, MSF expatriate who was uh, on that assessment was accused of spying and he was arrested for a few days. So they were taking it very seriously. Over the next five months, as MSF field teams are confronted with mounting evidence that Hutu refugees are being massacred by the Alliance and their allies, they begin to realise that a much larger dilemma is being created by their very presence in the Kivus. Sometimes their offer of aid is actually being used to lure refugees out into the open to be killed by the Alliance forces. 
In this episode, we look at the debates this prompts within MSF. Should they stop their activities in the area or pursue them, condemning manipulation in the hope of preventing massacres? Or by doing this, do they run the risk of endangering MSF teams and other operations in the region? This is Speaking Out, the hunting and killing of Rwandan refugees in Zaire, a podcast by MSF. I'm Nick Owen. Today, we say enough. Even war has rules. Stop the bombing of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. There should not be a scientific uh, research for that. We know that those people are dying. Episode 4. Humanitarians used as bait. The MSF emergency team is on the road in South Kivu, around the region's capital, Bukavu. It's less than a week since humanitarian teams have been allowed into this area of eastern Zaire, and MSF are being guided by reporters from Reuters news agency to a former displaced persons camp in the village of Chimanga. A few days earlier, the journalists found wounded survivors of a massacre hiding in and around the village and went to MSF with the news. Survivors tell them that on the 17th of November, rebel fighters of the Alliance had entered the former MSF camp and killed around 320 people. At the time, MSF passed on the information to both UNHCR and the International Committee of the Red Cross. But three days later, nothing has been done, and so the Reuters journalists come to MSF again and ask them to help organise a rescue of the wounded survivors. On our second day of arriving finally into Bukavu, we were met by this uh, very excited and demanding French journalist from Reuters who was uh, reporting us that he knew for sure there was a massacre that took place in Chimanga village and uh, he wanted us to do something. We, we couldn't do anything for a few days but finally we, in coordination with ICRC, we managed to set a convoy and set off to the place. Along the way we were met by a car of by a team of Save the Children who were collecting lost children and joined us uh, going to the to the place. When we arrived, the villagers uh, guided us to the places where they have uh, the, the few survivors uh, hiding. They were really deep in the bush, really. They were worried for them not to be found. They had been taking care of them for 13 days. We picked up the total of 11 wounded people, some of them children, and uh, the, the, the few I took care of, I remember very well, uh, there was a woman, a man, three children and an old woman. I was the doctor of the team, so they were the ones who were uh, most unwell. They all had uh, bullet wounds in their limbs, uh, horribly infected. Uh, talking to them and to the refugees in French, so this is first-hand uh, witnessing or testimony, they, they explained the events. The refugees in Chimanga, they managed to escape the control of the entire Hamway. And a group of them split and uh, and decided to stay and uh, discuss with the soldiers, the soldiers of the alliance, who took control of the place, that they, that they wanted to be lawfully repatriated into Rwanda. They were told to line up to take their names, and when they were all together, they were thrown hand grenades and machine gun, and they were all, they were all killed. Uh, then the soldiers recruited some 50 villagers to dig a deep, deep trench, where they were forced to, to throw the bodies. This was very traumatizing for the villagers. The account was still uh, emotional and they were very, very traumatized by, 
by the event. After that, we took the, the villagers back to Bukavu and we sent uh, most of them into, into Rwanda. The next day, a team from MSF Holland meet the Bukavu teams from the ICRC and UNHCR. They're preparing to denounce the Alliance's use of aid organisations as bait and to highlight the refugees' plight. But their plans are rapidly forced to change. We were forced to work and to do the assessment with these facilitators or we were followed by the army. But on a few occasions, we managed to arrive to locations where we found a little group of refugees hiding in the bush. We would come the first day, uh, provide them some assistance, come the next day, set up a tent and a clinic and dispensary, and then there would be these hundreds of refugees have become a few thousand of them who were coming out of the, of the bush. And then on the third or fourth day, we were stopped by the army as we were trying to reach them again, telling us there was a... Um, security issues, they had been fighting, we couldn't go. And on a couple of occasions on our way back, Syrian villagers told us, no, no, the army was following you and they came the last night and killed all of them and they buried them in that place. So we we were sharply aware that we were being used as bite. The same happened also with other organizations. Uh, ICRC and UNHCR had the same horrendous experiences. So we came to a meeting, I was, it, was, it was the 1st of December, MSF, UNHCR and ICRC, and we were proposing and trying to consolidate the, the decision of denouncing this to the world, stopping all operations and denouncing to the world the fact that the, the humanitarian assistance in Bukovo area was being used as bait to, to identify and kill refugees. It happened to be something that was happening in parallel in Goma, absolutely similarly, and as if they were aware of our decision-making process and the decision we were about to take, on that very same meeting, suddenly the liaison officer of the of the alliance, the guy who used to have to be in contact with the, with the NGOs and with the humanitarian community, uh, showed up saying, uh, "Do you want refugees? There you have them. They are coming on along the road, and then you can go and assist them." I think they, they, they clearly they, they opened the floodgates and, and shoved 5,000 refugees in our direction to make sure that we didn't uh, report anything anything to the world. We continued our discussion. We, it was not an easy decision to, to take that uh, manipulative uh, offer, but we decided to proceed and on the hope that they would be stopping the killings and they would not be used as bait, that we could work on this. Nevertheless, uh, for the number of times it happened, between three and five, I remember, and the, and the big amount of refugees that were gathering each of these times that we would reach a remote place and they would start collecting themselves, coming out of the bush. As a doctor, you know that sometimes you try your best and your, your patient dies and you just manage. But on this industrial scale, it, it's really, it was really tough. I had a, a really horrendous weight on my on my conscience of, of uh, through the intention of assisting these refugees probably being quite directly responsible of the killing of around 10,000 of them and, and the same for all the for all the other humanitarian organizations it's a it's a it's a really a terrible um, probably extreme example of, of the do no harm or the aid being used against those who who were trying to assist Luckily, we realized, and there was a very, very strong joint position from the organizations there, and we managed to, to stop it. Jose Antonio sends statements from the Chimanga massacre survivors to MSF Holland headquarters. The next day, the 2nd of December, 
the Dutch section's humanitarian affairs department forwards them on to Amnesty International. MSF asks not to be named as the source of the information. The MSF program manager and humanitarian affairs department also write to teams in the Great Lakes region about the protocol for information gathered on human rights abuses in the field. Since public advocacy on the atrocities near Bukavu is likely to further complicate access to the region, MSF decided in this case that the information gathered should be passed on to human rights organisations, such as Amnesty International. On a case-by-case basis, it will be assessed if information on human rights violations is used for external communications. Since the information gathered in general is of a sensitive nature to both witnesses, victims themselves and MSF, several guidelines will follow to avoid unnecessary security risks. 1. In principle, any information on human rights violations is confidential and not for external distribution before consulting MSF Holland. 2. To avoid unnecessary and confusing communication problems, the Humanitarian Affairs Department will be the only one communicating with Amnesty International on this matter in close consultation with the MSF Holland Emergency Desk for Eastern Zaire. 3. Preferably, information on human rights violations is gathered by the information officers in the field or, if this is not possible, by senior or experienced MSF staff. The international press reports the discovery of several mass graves dating from the mid-November attacks on the camps. The statements of survivors tell how the Alliance, together with the Interahamwe, or Hutu extremists from the camps, hunted them down in the forest to kill them. But MSF is not referenced in relation to these findings. All through December, Jose Antonio suggests that MSF close the mission in Bukavu. He tells the MSF Holland General Director about the November massacres in the area and how the humanitarian organisations, including MSF, are being used as bait. But his reporting is challenged. When we were finally completely aware that we were being used as bait to kill the very same refugees we were trying to assist, I, I raised to my headquarters, MSF Holland, the proposal, passionately, of, of stopping our activities. I mean, we were most likely, in a, in a cold balance, we were most likely provoking more deaths than, than survival of, of refugees. I remember reporting about the massacre in Chimanga and all the other statements of people and the being met with very strong legalistic questions. How many do you have direct witnesses? Have you taken their statements? Uh, are you sure it was a massacre? Are you sure it was not a crossfire? Have you seen the military killing the refugees that you collected? So hence you were used as bait. Was really was a very a very cautious position from from headquarters, most likely because it was uh, after the the numbers crisis, and the issue was serious and heavy. But they were paralyzed. In the middle of January 1997, the MSF Holland program manager visits Bukavu. In his Situation Report, or SITREP, to MSF sections in Zaire and Rwanda, he announces the team's decision to change their approach towards refugees to avoid being used as bait again. We will encourage people to come to the main roads and spread the news that they will get assistance on the road. This way we are sure that our assistance is helping the refugees. In the last two days we have concentrated our activities more on the road and this has reduced our fears. Both in North and South Kivu, we know that the humanitarian situation is bad. 
and we hear more and more from refugees that men and boys do disappear from refugee groups, taken by the Alliance, even Terahamwe, etc. By the end of January, the MSF Holland team in Goma sends headquarters their thoughts on what they call the tremendous decisions that face MSF in terms of advocacy versus assistance to the populations in the Great Lakes. The message criticises MSF for stopping its advocacy on violence in the Masisi region in North Kivu in order to focus on giving aid to the Hutu refugees. The inter-Ramway-led refugees in the interior of Zaire are in very poor shape. The critical humanitarian conflict arises again. The moral and medical obligation to assist, regardless of political affiliations and past crimes, versus the use of NGOs as pawns on a political chessboard. It is hard to turn our back on suffering, so we always search for middle ground, where we continue our work and use advocacy to put pressure on the international community to act. However, in this region, the additional problems of disintegrating security for international staff and freedom of access will make a compromise difficult. MSF should recognise the worth of its own advocacy and speak out about what it sees, even if this means we have to leave. If we continue to work in a country where we are forbidden to mourn the murder of three international staff members and we voice no protest, need we bother with advocacy at all? On the 1st of February, the team finally gets authorization to conduct an evaluation mission in Masisi, where the local people are facing a catastrophic food situation. But security problems force the exploratory team to turn back. A couple of days later, a joint MSF-ICRC team hears about a group of refugees hiding in the forest who want to return to Rwanda. They try to find them, but the next day, the refugees disappear. The team immediately calls off the search, and assistance operations worry that they have contributed towards the disappearance. It's now March 1997, and MSF Holland's team haven't been able to access Masisi in North Kivu since December. They decide a change of tack is needed. They start conducting nutritional surveys in northern Goma, and while speaking to the refugees, try to get information on the massacres they believe have taken place across the Masisi region. MSF Holland humanitarian affairs officer, Leslie Lefko. MSF Holland had not had access to Masisi for three months. Like much of the Kivus, access was systematically denied. When a team finally managed to get in in, in early March, it was a team of two, and they managed to get to Masisi town, and they, they found a, a kind of barren landscape. They found there was very little traffic on the road, there was no people, the villages had been burned, and where I think Masisi town itself had been virtually abandoned. But as they were driving back, I think, they were stopped, and a, and a boy gave them a letter. And the letter said something like, you know, we're, we're under attack, or we need help. I can't remember exactly the details, but... They then decided to go back and they asked uh, me to come with them. And I was a very green, inexperienced, newly arrived MSF information officer. And they asked me to come because basically they wanted to find out more about what was happening in the area. And that was one of the reasons I had been posted to the project. The next time the team get to the checkpoint outside Masisi town, 
They say to the Alliance guards that they're going straight into town. But they don't. They turn off the main road towards a village where MSF used to work before they were forced out of Easton Zaire last year. As we're driving through the hills, and you know, for me it's the first time in this area, it's very beautiful green hills and you see these fields that had been abandoned. Many of them looked like they hadn't been worked for months, if not longer. And then we noticed that we could see people running, but instead of running towards the village that we were going to, they were running away from the car. So it was clear that there was something that was not quite right. And so we arrive in this village and there's nobody around. It's completely deserted and we go to the health post first and it was looted, entirely looted. I mean, the, you know, the residue of, of medications and files and paper. I mean, just the whole place was, was, was a mess. And then as we're sort of walking around the village and, and wandering about, people start emerging and the health assistant um, came out and it was clear that everybody was in an intense state of fear and also deep surprise and shock that we had arrived, that we were there. So we talked to the people who came out a little bit, but people didn't really say very much. And then as we were preparing to leave, uh, we were told by one of the drivers that he had been told by some of the local folks that we couldn't leave because there were armed men stationed along the road outside and that they were going to shoot at us if we if we tried to leave so we obviously changed plan and um then a man came out uh who insisted that we come with him he was clearly a, a militia guy of some kind at that time we didn't know exactly who was controlling the village um he ended up um, escorting us for several hours walk across the hills to another place where we met uh, somebody who was clearly the commander. And they told us that there were mass graves in the area and wanted us to come and, and see the graves. And they took us to these sites where there were indeed areas of, of earth that had been displaced. And they started digging them up again. And... Uh, it was very hard to know who was actually buried there. I mean, there were there were signs that perhaps there were civilians because there was, I can remember there was a child's sandal and, you know, a lot of clothing. and But, you know, to this day, I, I, I don't know who exactly was in that grave because there had been so many attacks in that village and, and all of those villages. So we were let go. Um, we'd marched back to our cars in the village by the health centre and, and then we were about to get in the cars and go and then we were told that we would need to escort a wounded person. And it was clearly a combatant of some kind because he was a young man, he had a bullet wound um, and we were basically told we were given no choice that we should we should take him with us, which, of course, being MSF was not an issue. He needed care. But the problem was, of course, by this time, it was getting quite late in the day and we still had to drive back through these checkpoints to get back to Goma. The team are driving towards the checkpoint with the wounded man and his friend when another man hails down the MSF car. This man is a local teacher and he also gets in. He remains maybe one of the most moving memories because he told us that the village, you know, that these combatants who had marched us across the hills were inter-Hamway Hutu militiamen who were controlling the village. 
and basically holding the villagers hostage and and that the fact that they were present in the village of course then provoked attacks from the alliance or AFDL forces and so in a way he represented a, a an entire group of civilians who were trapped between these different forces and of course his his situation and the situation of those villagers in a way was a harbinger of of what came later for so many Zairians, Congolese themselves, of being trapped between these different warring forces and killed by both sides. But they aren't out of danger yet. The teacher jumps out of the car, but the wounded man and the woman from the village are still with them and they still need to get through the main checkpoint. They started asking questions because they knew that we hadn't actually gone to Masisi town. They knew that we'd gone off the road somewhere because they had asked or had been told by somebody else traveling on the road who had not seen our white, you know, land cruiser, the, the, the traditional humanitarian vehicle. So they stopped us and they started asking us questions. But of course, we didn't want to tell them where we'd been because we were afraid we would put people in the village at risk. So we had to lie and uh, we wouldn't say where we'd been and we didn't want them to find out about the wounded person in the vehicle either because he was clearly a combatant so we had a rather nervous night spent at the checkpoint but thankfully they did let us go in the morning and we made it back to goma over the next few days the military keep asking the msf team for a report of the trip they never give one but the Alliance puts restrictions on them getting access to Masisi again. By the end of March 1997, Jose Antonio Bastos has left his role as MSF's emergency team coordinator in Bukavu. He's back in Amsterdam debriefing MSF Holland on what he witnessed in South Kivu in November 1996. His colleagues at MSF are keen for Jose Antonio to pass on this information to Amnesty International in London. And so he finds himself on his way to the English capital. I came back from Bukavu. I debriefed in Amsterdam and I was met by the people of the humanitarian affairs team. And they offered me the possibility of, of debriefing with Amnesty International in London because MSF could not uh, publicly share all this information because we were still present in Bukavu, in Congo, and we could not expose our teams. So I was sent to London. I had a extremely fruitful and soul-healing meeting with the Amnesty International London, who took good note of all, all the events, the Chimanga massacre in particular, but, but also the, the use of humanitarian aid as a bite. It was a very, very healing exchange for me to know other things that were happening. And then... The, the information that the MSF could not make public was published by an Amnesty International report, and that was really uh, relieving my conscience and, and emotionally, but also rationally, that, that made that information had an impact about what had happened in Congo. On the 2nd of April, the MSF Holland Humanitarian Affairs Department tells their GOMA team about Jose Antonio's debriefing with Amnesty. They add that Amnesty is also requesting that the UN create an independent commission of inquiry and so might be interested in using MSF information gathered by Leslie and her colleagues in Masisi to support the work of this commission. Meanwhile, back in Bukavu, MSF Holland have managed to get on a UNHCR mission travelling west into Zaire. Eight people in two vehicles set out towards the town of Shabunda. 
The aim is to identify sites for transit points for the refugees. In a village halfway to Shibunda, a priest tells them that Alliance soldiers had recently carried out massacres in the area. One of the three MSF staff members on the mission remembers what happened. One day this priest came up to us saying, They are Nazis. They're killing everybody. You have to tell the international community. He was going crazy. To me, it was clear as soon as I found out what was happening around us. The goal was to get as much information as possible and get the info out. Use the info. I still looked for the transit campsites, but I used that more as an excuse to find and look for information and speak to the locals. In other places where the team stops, local villagers back this up, telling how soldiers have killed Hutu refugees and Zairians who help the refugees. But gathering information isn't easy, and again their movements are not free from scrutiny by the Alliance. The trip has only been authorised by the Alliance on the condition they send one of their so-called facilitators along with the team. In addition to that, rebels are stationed all along the road to Shibunda to terrorise the local Zairean people and keep watch on any refugees emerging from the forest. The MSF staff member again. The UNHCR protection officer took me to one side and told me she knew that there were mass graves and she needed my help to try and distract the spies in the village as well as the Alliance guy in the car with us. So we came up with a plan on how to distract people so we could look around and get information. In one of the first villages, the Alliance guy didn't want to get out of the car because he was too hot, so the UNHCR protection officer and her assistant came out of the car with me. The assistant went towards the river and the two spies in this village followed him. He got them in conversation, so then we had the chance to look around. We found graves just over this hill on the side of the village, pretty big, of freshly dug soil, interned with little crosses in it. So then we took pictures. The team finds mass graves in several locations and notices clothing scattered or strewn in trees. According to the UNHCR representative, these are warning signs left by survivors to tell other refugees that massacres have taken place there. The villagers ask the team how they can help the refugees. The humanitarian workers tell them to direct the refugees through the forests to a nearby MSF health station, bypassing the Alliance troops in the west. But this plan doesn't work out. The Zairean population were coming out and saying, The Tutsi said we can only help the refugees until Easter. After that they're going to kill us if we help them. What do we do? Help us. At that point we didn't know what was happening. We knew what the priest said, but it all still didn't make sense. So what we did was that we told them to send the refugees through the forest to Nzolu, because then they would be in the loop. By this point we didn't know that there were spies in every village. So we told the refugees to go there. Two days later, there were Alliance soldiers that came there and went north, and then there were no more refugees coming from Nzolu. As they get closer to Shabunda, the situation gets worse. The Alliance now seem to be ordering locals to clean up the evidence of massacres along the roads. As you got further along the way, things got messier and messier. At this bridge at Shabunda, one side was really clean, and the other side they hadn't had a chance yet to clean, and there was lots of material, clothing, a licence, eating utensils. So they were trying to clean ahead of us, and they were trying to delay us. They kept telling us, we did not have permission to go, you need permission for access. 
There were places you would go and you would see a huge square. There would be grass this high compared to the other grass this high. And I can't say for sure that they were mass graves, but the fact that there was freshly overturned soil, everybody told us that people were cleaning up ahead of us. Just before we got to Shabunda, we actually came across Alliance soldiers and Zairians, and they were surprised. One colonel, named Colonel Jackson, came out and started yelling at me in Kenya Rwanda, and then I told him I only understood French. He started speaking to me in French, and at the same time, I could see behind him there were Zairians throwing shovels into a truck. They were putting shovels away really quickly. As soon as they were done putting the shovels in the truck, he got into the truck, stopped yelling, and he said, Do you have any diesel for us? And then we said, No. And then he left. When the team finally arrives in Shibunda, things take a frightening turn. Rwandan and Zairean representatives of the Alliance Intelligence Agency hold the team as prisoners overnight, threatening to kill them. They brought us to this monastery and pointed to us and told us, You go to this room, you go to that room. I remembered when I left my last mission, two people were murdered. They came at night and killed them. So we were in our rooms. I went out to talk to the UNHCR protection officer and I looked everywhere and found a key to lock one room. We all pretended to go to bed and then we waited until it was dark and we snuck out and locked ourselves in that one room. At four in the morning, these people came and started walking the hallway. They didn't do anything, but this was the only time I thought, the party's over. And nothing happened. The next day we got up and demanded our passports back. They'd say no, and we would say yes, and we wouldn't take no for an answer, so they finally gave them to us. In Shibunda, on the ground in the dark, I could hear my heart getting louder and louder. I was thinking, oh my God, I'm never going to see my mum again but I wouldn't act scared. There was this guy called Carl Lewis, named after this American runner who won two gold medals in the Olympics. They had these code names so they wouldn't have their real names. He was sort of in charge of us. He was really pushy and trying to scare me. And the next day he asked, were you scared last night? And I said, of course not. We had you protecting us. And then he got mad. They were basically in control of Shabunda, there were representatives from the Alliance. They were both Tutsi and Zairians, and they were a committee. They told us straight, we can't reach the enemy in the forest. It's good to use the NGOs to pull the refugees out of the forest. This is a direct confirmation that the Alliance have been using humanitarian organisations as lures to get refugees to come out of the forest. On the road again, the team heads back towards Bukavu. They stop at the home of a missionary who's been hiding and protecting refugees, and he confirms that thousands of refugees have been killed in the region. Just after the humanitarian teams leave, Alliance soldiers kill several people at the mission. Speaking to the MSF staff member over the radio later, the missionary tells them the only way he's able to stop the rebel soldiers from killing people is by agreeing to get refugees to leave the area and walk down the road towards the nearest town. After nine days travelling over difficult roads and under precarious security conditions, the MSF staff member writes their mission report. As we drove from village to village, it was clear that the villagers and refugees alike were terrified of the military. 
In practically every village we stopped in, we heard stories or insinuations about what the military was doing to the refugees. The stories ranged from incidents to precise descriptions with locations and numbers of refugees getting killed. On our way to Shabunda, we often heard that the military had preceded us in order to tell villagers that we were coming, and these visits terrified the population. Also, a little more disturbing, we heard from both the local population and refugees alike that the military followed us. When we pass through, refugees hear that we are in the area, feel safe and emerge from the forest. The military who are following us then eliminate the refugees who have emerged from the forest. More and more evidence is pointing towards MSF and other humanitarian teams being used as bait. The MSF staff member also suspects that information sent over the radio to headquarters is compromising the safety of both the refugees and themselves. I was really pissed off. One time, we were getting all this info, and the MSF coordination team were demanding that we pass the information over the radio. They kept demanding that we do it. All these people were being killed. We had a pretty clear idea that this was happening and they were still providing intake information of how many refugees were coming in at what time over the radio. We were telling everyone where the refugees were coming from, how many, which town. Wherever we were in the Kivus, we were supposed to send in the information on the refugees so you could probably tell the concentration of refugees, where they were coming from, all those kinds of things. The military was listening. I can't imagine they weren't. I told the coordination team I couldn't tell them now. I couldn't tell them anything. I guess they could have been unaware, but I just thought it was a very stupid thing to do. I tried to tell them things, but our codes were not very effective. If you say 200 strawberry, everyone knows where you are. They know how many people they just killed, so they know what you're talking about. The whole situation is becoming more and more complicated and volatile in Eastern Zaire. Soon, MSF realised they can't trust anyone. Not even, it turns out, members of their own team. Suspicion falls on one of the local nurses when they try to get a list of names of the population who are helping refugees in the area. The nurse is found to be an informant for the Alliance. Afterwards, there's a mixed reaction at MSF as to what to do with the information gathered during the exploratory missions in Masisi and Shibunda. Some members of the MSF Holland team in Goma want to publicise the information, while others worry that this will endanger the villagers and MSF's programmes in the region. But what about the team's lie to the Alliance about the goal of their mission being nutritional surveys rather than collecting witness statements? Does this weaken MSF's credibility with the rebel forces? Who should they trust? Next time on Speaking Out, the hunting and killing of Rwandan refugees in Zaire. More and more Hutu refugees are making their way out of the forests now that MSF and other humanitarian organisations are known to be in the Kivus. But this causes extreme pressure on the few camps where MSF is operating and the health of the refugees takes a turn for the worse. I have never seen refugees in such a physical state. They were literally exhausted, malnourished and, and sick. Actually, the one we were seeing there were the survivor of the survivor. And as the Alliance pushes further west across Zaire towards the city of Kisangani, they drive even more refugees out of the camps and Zairians out of their homes. 
Thousands of people are on the move and living in the forests. They're exhausted, malnourished, often injured and terrified. With dangerously slow movement from UNHCR to repatriate the Rwandan refugees, the Alliance takes control with deadly consequences. This MSF podcast is based on an original MSF case study called The Hunting and Killing of Rwandan Refugees in Zaire, Congo, 1996-1997. It's written by Laurence Binet and is part of the Speaking Out Case Studies series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Laurence Binet, Martin Solnier and Rebecca Golden Timsar. The narrator is Nick Owen. The extracts are read by Danielle Stagg and Matthew Wade. Additional readings are by Clive Hayward. Music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Dr. Jose Antonio Bastos and Leslie Lefko. To read the full study and discover other case studies, please go to our website msf.org slash speaking out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>